dynamic diversity Bringing us together like we're supposed to be Dynamic magazine We're all different but we can learn from each other Dynamic Diversity Unfiltered. Dynamic Leaders for a Changing World Magazine's premier podcast. We bring you the voices of today's renowned societal leaders and average folks talking about what they do, how they got there, and what they're thinking about in the controversial world of diversity, inclusion, and race relations. In this episode... Well, the motivation is, uh, and always has been, is to find out how someone can hate me when they don't even know me. Uh, my motivation was not to go out there and meet them and convert them. I just want to understand what is going on inside their mind. Uh, what, what is it when they see someone who does not have white skin, why they have such a visceral negative reaction about these people? Dynamic talks with Daryl Davis about the power of conversation. Quote, I ain't never scared, end quote. Daryl Davis does tremendous work across this nation that most or all of us would be too fearful to undertake. But Daryl says, quote, I ain't never scared, end quote. He has been featured in movies, TV shows, and has a long history as a musician playing with legendary greats to include Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Percy Sledge. What we discuss today is his activist work as it relates to diversity. Often we exclude those who think, look, and act different than we do on the basis that they have nothing to offer us. It is an unfortunate fact that no change can take place without dialogue. Daryl Davis explains why inviting conversations and recognizing the diverse views in our society is the only way to building a stronger nation. Right, so the first question I have for you is where are you originally from and how diverse was that community? Okay, originally I am from Chicago, but I never spent mm-hmm. a lot of time anywhere really. Uh, I traveled around the world uh, as a young child, and I guess the most time I've spent anywhere is where I am now, in uh, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. All right. Uh, what fueled your passion for music, and how has it helped you to break barriers? Well, yes, I do have a passion for music. I also have a degree in music. And, you know, music is the universal language. So it has definitely, you know, brought people of a diverse background to my concerts. You know, people from all educational backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, races, and belief systems, including um, white supremacists. And, you know, when you have these people all in the same room and, and you're bonded by your, by your common love for music, you know, that says something. Um, I yes. remember reading some articles uh, just before the last time we spoke, and I, I saw where you lived in Europe and Asia. So can you tell me a bit about this and how, um, how, how that experience living in diverse cultures 
fueled your passion or, or helped you to want to understand um, diversity on a more intrinsic level? Sure. Okay. Well, as as a young child, you know, um, very young, I, I was exposed to many, many different cultures around the world because my my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up mm-hmm. in the American Embassy, and you get uh, assigned to a country, to a foreign country, and you were there for two years, and then you return home here to to the United States, and you're here from I don't know six months, nine months, and then you get uh, reassigned to another country. Well, when I was in these foreign countries, uh, going to school, my classes would have students from Nigeria, Italy, China, Russia, Japan, uh France, Germany, you name it. If if any uh if if any country had an embassy where we were assigned, all the kids from all the embassies, we all went to the same school, to the international school. So as a very young kid, I I was in class with people from all over the world. Uh that's how it was overseas. And if you know in the 1960s. So uh, if you were to look at that, if you were to walk in and look at that classroom and ask to describe it, you would say it looks like a a little United Nations with kids. And um, <laughs> exactly. And but then the problem was when I would come home uh, after the two years, I come back here to my own country. Um, I was either going to newly integrated schools or still segregated ones. And there was not the amount of diversity in the classroom that I had overseas. It was just um, all black kids, like myself, or um, black and white kids if the school was newly integrated. Um, there were not a whole lot of other people from other countries and things like that. Um, so, How did that contrast affect you personally? Uh, it did not affect me until I began being ostracized, until I began... You know, feeling uh, racism. Uh, when, when, you know, when 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 it, people would attack me and things like that, then yes. And I began to wonder, well, why? I mean, um, I'm no different than anybody else. And and the white kids um, who I knew overseas, whether they were my fellow Americans uh, from the embassy or my little French friends or German friends or Swedish friends, you know, they did not behave. Like 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 these people back you know back home here, uh, and I couldn't I, and and I was told that it was because of my skin color, and it made no sense to me. So literally, when I was overseas, I was living twelve to fifteen years into the future ahead of my time, because that scenario had about twelve to fifteen years before it would come to this country. Today, when you walk into a classroom. Uh, here in this country, it looks just like it looked to me back in the 1960s overseas. So the kids here were not, um, you know, living in the in in, in proper time. You know, they were behind, and they had not accepted people who were different. So I, I accepted it at an early age. It's all I knew. I thought everybody, you know, lived like that. But it was a rude awakening to me when I found out that my own um, fellow Americans. Not all of them, of course, but many of them um, did not have that experience of being around people from all over the world and therefore had a sense of um, xenophobia or um, 
or prejudice because you know they did not these are people who do not look like them or so forth and so on and our and our and our country has a history of racism when i was overseas there was none right right and you you grew up essentially in 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 the heights of the civil war or the aftermath of it um no 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 you... not not civil war <laughs> the civil war ended in 1865 so uh, you My mean the apologies. civil you mean the civil rights movement civil rights movement yes my yeah. apologies for that um you grew up essentially at, at that time so, so yes. tell me tell me how how did it uh traveling so much and seeing a different context within whatever community you were immersed in as as an expatriate essentially living elsewhere and then coming home to see this 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 fight going on for simple rights that you might not see others fighting for overseas how did well i wasn't i wasn't an expatriate at all you know we, we you know we were simply on assignment that's all you know, the the job oh, took okay. us overseas Right. So, but, but how did this, how did how did seeing the difference between what what you enjoyed overseas and what you had to see others fighting for at home so 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 sometimes so violently um how did that influence or impact you any at all? Um, it impacted me to try to find out how someone could judge me when they didn't know me. They'd never seen me before. They'd never talked to me. They they had never done any research on me, so they knew nothing about me. But yet they had made a decision about me that I was bad, uh, and and that decision was was solely based upon the color of my skin, and I could not understand how people could arrive at that uh, conclusion, not knowing anything about me. I'd never talked to these people before, but yet you know they would throw throw things at me or call me names and uh, things like that. So my my curiosity was piqued. And and I had to find out, um, you know, wh- where is the justification for this? Uh, h- how do people explain that? Because I, c- I could not get my head around that. Especially, you know, when I had been treated um, totally the opposite by people who looked just like those people who were offending me. Now, ha- you know, if, if, I, if I had not uh, gone overseas and had that experience, and I had grown up my entire life here, would I have done the things that I've done today? Probably not. Um, if I had gone overseas and um, and I had been abused by um, by white people over there, um, then I, I won't say I would be accustomed to it, but I would say that I would expect it, you know, when I get back here, because I would be, ju- I would be basing it upon, okay, well, those people look like this, and... Um, so that you know, so the white people over there who abuse me, and I see white people over here, they'll probably abuse me too. You know, it's like somebody who is afraid of dogs. You know, if if you're a child and and you get bitten by a dog overseas, you know, when you come home, you know, you're still gonna be a little bit leery of dogs. But because I was treated very well by some people, and then I come back home, and there's some people who look like the people who treated me very well, who are now abusing me, I, I, I couldn't understand that. You know, I was too young to understand that. So I had to find out the reason behind it, which is which is what, you know, I've been doing for the last, uh, you know, 48 years. Okay, and, and do you remember your first experience with um, interviewing a KK, KKK member? If so, oh, tell course. us how... 
how, how did you get to um, arranging that and how did you feel approaching that situation given, you know, the, the vitriol you might have been expecting from that? Well, you know, I was never, I was never afraid of people. Um, you know, they, 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 they invoke and, uh, and provoke fear in, um, in a lot of people. They, they evoke it with their robes and hoods and their, and their rhetoric and all that kind of stuff. But that kind of stuff, you know, never, never frightened me. Um, and certainly, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an adult. You know, if somebody physically attacks me, you know, I'm, I will defend myself, and I'm, I'm very capable of that. Um, so I, you know, I, I realized when I, when these meetings were set up, that there was potential, you know, for violence, for, for confrontation. Uh, fortunately, that did not happen very often. It happened, you know, a few times. Um, you know, where I had to, to become physically violent with somebody. But fortunately, that was not, you know, always the case. But I was prepared for that because you, you're dealing with somebody who hates, somebody who, who thinks that you're less than human. And it's like, you know, a cockroach, you know, running around under your foot, you step on it, you know, to get rid of it. And that's how they feel about, you know, black people or Jewish people or Asian people or homosexuals or whatever. So you you know their attitude coming in, and um, hopefully, you know they won't act upon that attitude. They will sit sit down and be compliant, and explain to you why they have this attitude. So uh, what I was armed with was my knowledge. Uh, I studied a great deal uh, on the ideology of um, of white supremacy and supremacy in general, even black supremacy. Because the principles are basically the same. Supremacy is supremacy, regardless of where it comes from. And so, even if they, you know, even if they did not like me, uh, to some degree, they had to respect me, because I had knowledge. I had as much knowledge, if not more, than they did on their own topic, on their own organization. And when they recognized that, they became very curious about me. Like, hmm, you know, how does this guy know all this? Uh, so, you know, there was a, a degree of respect there. And then some people, of course, you, you know, they just don't care. And they and they will attack you anyway. And, and your fr very first experience? Tell us about that. Um, you, mean, you mean interviewing a, a Klansman or, 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 your, or meeting one in general? No, interviewing a Klansman. Okay, my, my very first experience, um, he did not know. Uh, he, he, was, he was the state leader. So that would be, uh, it's called a Grand Dragon. A Grand Dragon means state leader. Imperial Wizard means national leader. So when I first met him, he was uh, a Grand Dragon, and later he would become an Imperial Wizard, and then later he would uh, quit the clan and, um, and give me his robe and hood and apologize for being in it. Um, but the, the first time I met with him, uh, I had my secretary call him, and uh and and ask him would he would he consent to sitting down and having an interview uh with me with her boss who is writing a book on the clan and i told my secretary do not tell this man that i'm black you know if he asks don't lie to him but don't give him reason to ask um i i i i'd already been told that he was dangerous and uh, and he could do me you know a fatal harm and um mm -hmm. I, and i really should not fool with him um, but I wanted to talk to him. So I figured I would have her call him and see if he would talk. 
And I figured if he if he agreed, well, then he would see that I'm black, you know, when he met me. And uh, so she called him, and he agreed. And uh, he didn't ask what color I was. Because, see, um, my book, you know, I, wrote, I was writing a book on the Klan, and I was going to travel all around the country uh, interviewing Klan leaders and Klan members. And all the books written on the Klan have been written by white authors. My book uh, is the first book ever written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan from the perspective of sitting down face-to-face and interviewing these people. So that's not a common practice. So I knew that that he was thinking, of course, that this uh, interview would be conducted with a white person because there were no black people writing books on the Klan. And, um, you know, most black people would, would not want to sit in a room with a Klansman and talk, to, talk with them. So... Uh, uh, he came to to the we, we set we set up the interview in a motel room, and um, he came to the motel room with his uh, bodyguard, and who was wearing a gun. And um, when he saw me in the motel room, at first he he was thinking he he he, he was at the wrong uh, room. You know, he, he must have knocked on the wrong door. And um, and then he began looking all around the room, like you know, are there other people here? Am, am I going to be attacked or whatever? And I stood up. My secretary was there. It was just me and my secretary. I stood up and I and I displayed the palms of my hands, so he would see that there was nothing in my hands. And I walked towards him and I said, "Hi." I said, "I'm Daryl Davis," and I extended my hand, and he shook it. He shook it actually, and uh, and his bodyguard shook my hand. I said, "Come on in." And uh, the the uh, the uh, Grand Dragon had a seat, and the um, the bodyguard stood at attention uh, to his right. And I had a bag. We're sitting at a table. Him on one side, me on the other. And I had um, a bag next to my uh, to my chair. Um, and I had blank cassettes in the bag. I, I put a cassette uh, player in the middle of the table so I could record the interview. And uh, I also had a copy of the Bible in the bag because the uh, the KKK they claim to be a Christian organization, and they say that the Bible preaches. Uh, racial separation. So I've never seen that in the Bible. So I want to be able to, to to retrieve my Bible and hand it to him and say, okay, show me where chapter and verse where it says uh, black blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared. Well, every time he'd make a biblical reference or my or my cassette player ran out of tape, I would reach down into the bag to get a fresh cassette or pull out the Bible. And every time I'd reach down to the bag. The uh, the bodyguard reached for you know for his gun. He, he put his hand on on the handle of his gun, and because you know he didn't know what was in the bag, you know he didn't know if there was a threat in there or or what, uh, which I you know I understood. And after a while, he 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 realized you know that the bag was safe and there was nothing in there that was going to cause him or his boss uh, danger. So he relaxed, and I went in and out of the bag no problem. Um, this went on for a while, and uh, you know we. We talked a lot. Um, he felt that he was superior to me, and that um, that my the, the color of my skin made me inferior. And he he had been, you know, brainwashed into thinking that that uh, black people had smaller brains uh, than white people. That uh, we had a a disposition of being uh, lazy, um, also uh, prone to to criminal activity. And uh, and things like that, all the th- all the stereotypical uh, uh, racially prejud- prejudicial things 
that these people think about other people. His white skin, you know, gave him superiority, a larger brain, um, you know, less prone to, uh, to criminal activity, all that kind of thing. But, you know, there, there were some things that, you know, that we, that we agreed upon. Um, and, uh, you know, and for example, uh, you would say that we need better education for kids. You would say that we need to get drugs off the streets. So, of course, I would say that too. And so did he. So we found things like that, you know, that were in common. You know, we, we all want better education. We all want to get rid of drugs. Uh, so when we found these things that we agreed upon, I began to nurture those com- those commonalities and build upon that. And over time, not you know, not the same day, of course, but over time, um, you know, the, the relationship was building. And I would invite him down to my house. He lived about an hour and a half away. I would invite him down to my house, and he would come. He would bring his nighthawk. Uh, uh, Nighthawk means bodyguard in, in clan language. Um, he'd bring his bodyguard, and um, uh, we would sit in my living room and talk. Sometimes I would invite my, my some of my black friends, some of my white friends, some of my Jewish friends to come over and also engage in a conversation with him uh, because I, I did not want him to think that I was some kind of exception. I wanted him to have conversations with other people that he was not fond of. And so we would do this. And for two years, uh, he you know he would come down to my house. We would even uh, have uh, lunch or dinner at my table, or we would go out and uh, and eat uh, at a restaurant together. And this was somebody who felt he was better than me. Um, and after a couple of years, uh, he well, you know d- during that time he never invited me to his house. Um, after a couple of years, he was coming down to my house by himself without the bodyguard, and. Uh, shortly after a couple of years, he was he was promoted from a Grand Dragon state leader to a Imperial Wizard national leader, and he began inviting me to his house, and I would go to his house. Uh, we would sit around and talk. Uh, he would show me different clan things. I would take pictures. I would make more notes uh, for my book, and uh, the book was called Clandestine Relationships, and clandestine was spelled with a K, not a C. Um, and then uh, uh, he would invite me to to some of the rallies that he would put on, and I would watch this. You know, they'd, they'd set this big cross on fire and parade around in their robes and hoods and give speeches. Um, so, you know, I was doing all this. Now, also at the same time, I was interviewing other clan people because I was traveling a lot. I was interviewing other clan people uh, from other states and things like that. Um, some of them were were less friendly. Some of them were as friendly. Uh, but in the end, um, he he made up his mind that because uh, my my question was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And over time, he began to realize, and his mind was made up that he could not hate me. He had no reason to hate me. I had not done anything adverse to him. I wanted many of the same things uh, that he wanted. And um, and he figured that he had been wrong, and he apologized, and he and he left the uh, the organization uh, as an imperial wizard, as a national leader, and he gave me his um, his robe and his hood. So that was the first guy. Uh, right. Not, and not 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 the first one to give up his robe and hood to, hood to me. I had several of those mm-hmm. before he did, but he was the first one that I interviewed. 
And we have we had a situation well it seems to be relatively calm of late um when when it comes to what what has been dubbed racial profiling and as a result racial racially motivated crimes against black people coming from law enforcement officers. So a lot of people the the, the, the narrative floating around from what we would we would call the oppressed side being the black minority is that they their racial profiles mostly because of the color of their skin and 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 the thought that they are no better or more aggressive than so many other um, ethnic groups. So, do you think this has anything? If it's true, do you think it possibly has anything to do with this? With the same thought Klan, Ku Klux Klan members have when it comes to I see where where one told you that black people are genetically made up to be more violent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a lot a lot of white people feel that way. Um, a lot of them do, and and it's a, a a lot of it comes from the media, okay? Because you know when you see um, these, uh, okay, for example, uh, if mm-hmm. if a white person is, um, well, usually a white person is not shot uh, uh, by the police for holding his cell phone. You know, we, we've we've had countless countless incidents where uh, white officers have shot a black man, uh, an innocent black man, for holding his, his wallet or holding his cell phone. And the cop says, I thought it was a gun, and I feared for my life. Um, this, that's happened too many times. And, and they killed the guy. Um, and so, of course, after a while, black people get angry. And 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 the 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 officer is you know it goes to court and and the court acquits him, finds him not guilty and and he 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 was acting in in the line of duty that even even you know it was he you know it was tragic that an innocent man was killed and a mistake was made. The guy thought it was a was a gun, but he did what he was trained to do. Um, well, you know when that happens, you know if it happens once or twice, uh, you know you don't go out and riot. Uh, and and you hope that the police would would give the, their officers better training, better abilities. But when it happens time and time and time again, and 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 the cops are not being being uh, prosecuted, and then um, it never happens with white people. You don't hear about white people getting shot for holding their you know for holding their cell phone or their wallet. Yes, white people do get shot, but it's usually when they have a gun. And they're waving their gun around, and then some cop shoots them because he he truly fears for his life. But you don't hear about white people getting shot for holding cell phones and wallets. Um, How do you so, think we change that that, huh? that that narrative? What? How do you think we can change that narrative? Uh, we need to ha- we need to have both police and and minorities come to the table and talk, because if not. There's always going to be this rioting. There's always going to be attacks on police. People are tired of uh, of their oppressors. You know, look, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Okay, you remember um, Dylan Roof? Yes, I did. Okay, the, the 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 white guy who went into the black church, right, in South Carolina. Right, right. In Charleston, the murders, right? Right, exactly. Okay. Here's a here's a white guy. He goes into a black church. He doesn't he does not know anybody there. He's never seen them before. He's never spoken with them before. He goes in there prepared to kill them 
with, with, with an automatic um, a weapon and, and loads of rounds of ammunition. And he kills nine people. And then he walks out. All right? When he is apprehended, they do not slam him down on the ground and bash his head into the sidewalk and put the cuffs on him and rough him up and throw him into the car, in, into, into the police car. Okay? That's the normal procedure. Because this guy is armed and dangerous. Those are the key words. Armed and dangerous. Of course he's dangerous. He just killed nine people. Right? But yet they handled him. You, you, can, you can go on YouTube and watch the news footage of his capture. They handled him very gently. They very gently put on the handcuffs. They very gently helped him into the back seat of the, uh, of the police car and they put his seatbelt on, and then on the way to jail, he said that he was hungry. So the police stopped at Burger King, the hamburger place, and bought him a hamburger, and then took him to jail. So Dylan Roof gets to go to Burger King. Now, Eric Garner, you remember him, up in, um, right. Right, in, in uh, New York, He's not committing. Was he breaking the law? Yes, he was breaking the law. It's illegal to sell cigarettes unless you have a license. Okay, he's selling loose cigarettes on the sidewalk. That is not a criminal offense. Is breaking? No, going into somebody's church and shooting them is a criminal offense. I mean, I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to say criminal offense. I meant to say it was not a violent criminal offense selling loose cigarettes. Okay, so you got about five or six cops jump on him, body slam him to the ground, bash his head into the sidewalk, put their knee on his neck and choke him. And he says, I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. I can't breathe. And they choke him till he dies right there on camera. Now, you look at that. Eric, Eric Garner goes to his grave. Dylan Roof goes to Burger King. So there's the contrast. How much longer do we have to take this? This is why. You, you know, I, I'm not saying it's justified that people go out and turn over police cars and burn down buildings and riot and all, and all that kind of stuff and, and want to shoot cops. No, that's not right. But that is the reason this is happening, because what happened to Eric Garner happens way too often. What happened to Dylan Roof happens way too often. One gets handled very gently, one gets killed all the time. So the solution is not rioting and burning down buildings and all that kind of crazy stuff. But I guarantee you that that will be the result if it continues, because it's a pattern. We see it all the time. And and people are tired of being oppressed like this and not being treated equally. We don't want special treatment. We just want equal treatment. That's all. So the the solution is to bring these people that we perceive to be oppressors to the table with the people that they perceive to be criminal elements in society. Not all black people are criminals, just like not all white people are racist. But we need to bring those sides to the table and let them talk and be honest with each other. Because when two enemies are talking, they are not fighting. They might be disagreeing, but at least they're talking. And it's when the talking ceases 
that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you always want to keep the conversation going. We need the police, and the police need us. So we need to come together. And and so, so that way, everybody gets to know one another. That's the key. You know, people are being judged by what they don't know instead of being judged by what they do know. Right. And moving away from um, racial issues just a bit, you recently lost uh, a close friend, Chuck Berry. Um, how, yes. how, how, has, how has playing music with him over the years influenced your life, and, and, and what will it be um, going forward? You know, that he, he, is, he is the reason that I got into music, and I will be speaking at his funeral um, right. uh, in, in, a, in, a, in another uh, week and a half. Uh, at his service. Um, he was a very, very good friend of mine. And um, as a child, I listened to his music. I liked it, and I decided you know, I would become a musician because of him. Um, and fortunately for me, um, I was able you know, not only to, to learn to play uh, that kind of music, but I was very fortunate in the regard that I got the opportunity to work with my idol. And I worked with him for 32 years, and on and off, and um, uh, even more than what that. Was he I, like as a person? Pardon me. What was he like as a person? Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful man to me. A lot of people have, uh, you know, some negative stories about him and all that kind of thing. I have a lot of positive stories about him. Uh, Chuck Berry was a genius. You know, uh, and and I I don't say that because he's dead or I'm trying to flatter somebody. No, he he truly was a genius, and uh, any genius is going to have some bit of um, of being uh, eccentric. Um, so you know the 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 average normal person oftentimes does not understand that, and they sometimes construe uh, eccentricity with uh, being arrogant or unsociable or things like that. You have to understand, you know, geniuses think a little different than the average person. Now, why do I say he's a genius? Well, because he is. Um, many musicians can say, uh, I, um, I can write a song, and, and many of them can write songs, and many of them have written good songs and have sold millions of records. But very few, very few musicians can say that they invented a genre of music. Chuck Berry invented rock and roll. There would be no rock and roll without Chuck Berry. There wouldn't be an Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Elton John. All these people who are rock performers, they all were influenced by Chuck Berry. He created that genre. Just like, you know, you, you, we would not have classical music as we know it without Beethoven. Beethoven was a genius. All right? Um... No matter, no matter what kind of car you drive, I don't know what kind of car you have, but I can, and it doesn't matter. I can tell you this: whether you have a Chevrolet, whether you have um, a smart car, whether you have a Rolls Royce or a Porsche, Ferrari, it doesn't matter. You still owe Henry Ford with his Model A and Model T car. You know, he was the first one to to invent the automobile. And yes, you know, they they were primitive back then, but everything evolved from that. 
So just like every car evolved from Henry Ford's um, Ford first Ford automobiles, uh, every bit of rock music, whether it was hard rock, punk rock, acid rock, whatever, psychedelic rock, it all evolved out of the rock and roll that Chuck Berry created. Um, and like I said, you know, people, listen, When one time I played with them um, at uh, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton's uh, inauguration. And Bill Clinton had all his favorite uh, people um, performing uh, at, at his inaugural ball. Michael Jackson, um, uh, Barbara Streisand, Willie Nelson, Michael McDonald, Dionne Warwick, on and on and on, all these famous uh, superstars. When uh, Chuck and I came into the room, into the green room, uh, before to, before performing, they all were in there, and we went to our table, and, and I was sitting at, at, at his table with him. All of these people got up from their table and came over to his table to say hello to him. Streisand, Michael McDonald, Judy Collins, Dionne Warwick, all these people came over to his table to, to pay their respects to him while I was sitting there. That is a genius. Right, right, right. Because and, you know, and, and, no matter no matter how great they were, and they are great, they did not invent mm-hmm. any genre of music. Right, right. And and what is the lesson to be taken away from um, the the ability to going back to racial issues a bit, but the ability to sit at a table and and have conversations with members of Ku Klux, one of the most radical. Um, groups in the U.S. Uh, and and have them convert their way of thinking to something more inclusive, more accepting. What is the lesson to be taken away from this? Okay, let me answer that question uh, in one second. Let me just add one more thing about Chuck Berry. Um, oh, I'm sorry, what? No, I'm saying go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, you know, back back in the day, in this country, uh, music halls, concert venues. They, if they allowed black people to come in at all, they were segregated. There were ropes going around the uh, seating sections that had signs hanging from the ropes. And the signs would say, seating for white patrons only. And uh, and the other seating section would have a sign that said, colored seating only. All right? And you did not cross-sit. You had to sit in the section according to your skin color. Just like I'm sure you know that back in the day, we had separate water fountains, separate bathrooms for black people and white people. Uh, black people had to sit in the back of the bus, all that kind of thing. Um, that's the way it was in these music halls. You know, if, if if I wanted to go to a concert with a white person, um, I could not sit with that person. I had to sit in my section, and they had to sit in theirs. That was the law. And if you broke the law, you went to jail. Simple as that. Okay. So most people um, abided by the law. They sat where they were supposed to sit. They did not try to, you know, go and cross sit or whatever. If they went to see Frank Sinatra or whoever, they stayed in their section. Well, in the 1950s, when Chuck Berry invented rock and roll, those same laws were in place. But a phenomenon happened. When Chuck Berry came out playing that music with that new beat, that he created. It was a new beat. Teenagers were not accustomed to this kind of kind of thing. Nobody was, because it hadn't been done before. These kids, black kids and white kids, 
they bounced up out of their chairs, and they knocked over the ropes and the signs, and they were dancing and boogieing in the aisle together for the first time in American history. Black kids and white kids were dancing together to the music of Chuck Berry. And that made people very, very angry. That's why they did not like rock and roll, because they they felt that rock and roll was causing race mixing. And they would ban rock and roll concerts from their town. The police would come in to the concert and shut it down in the middle of the performance, because this was illegal. White kids and, 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 and black kids were dancing together. Now, uh, that's that's what Chuck Berry caused. So right. while while people at the same time, while people like great people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other civil rights activists, both black and white, while they were marching and having demonstrations and protests and boycotts and all these kinds of things in order to bring black adults and white adults together. Chuck Berry was achieving that with black and white kids through his music. So okay. that's something that, that needs to be to be brought out. Okay, and then you said, what's the, what's the takeaway with, uh, with the, sitting down at the Klan, sitting down at a table with the Klan? Um, the takeaway is this. You know, people are generally brought up to believe that uh, people cannot change. You know, you know, once you have a personality, it is what it is. Um, we have uh, cliches in this country. People will say, a tiger cannot change its stripes. A leopard cannot change its spots. These are things that we, that we hear as children. And so, you know, you grow up believing you know, that, that these things are true. People are what they are, and that's it. You have to accept it. Well, uh, I came into into the into these meetings with these people uh i i never set out to change them um that, that was not my mission to convert anybody my mission was simply to find out you know you don't even know me just tell me how you can hate me just give me evidence that you that you have that makes me a bad person so uh over over time when they could not provide that evidence they realized that they couldn't hate me and they began liking me, and they began questioning their own ideology, and they began changing. The leopard began changing its spots. The tiger began changing its stripes. The Klansman began changing his ideology, his personality. All right, so things can change. And if one, if, if, if one person changes, then you change a generation, because he changes somebody else. He influences his kids his surroundings, his family. So that is the takeaway. And I saw it happen time and time again. Now, of course, I do realize that, that there are people on, on both sides, black or white, um, clan or not clan, who will go to their graves never changing. They will always be racist. They will always be violent um, and be hateful. You know, there, there will be those kinds of people. But if, if but if there are ones who can change, if you just change one, you change a generation. And so if that one that that you know that that changes because of you changes somebody else, and then he changes somebody else, that's a good thing. Okay, and tell us about your affinity for making friends with the KKK members. Tell us what is the motivation behind this quest, and what has the experience been like. 
Well, the motivation is, uh, and always has been, is to find out how someone can hate me when they don't even know me. Uh, my motivation was not to go out there and meet them and convert them. I just want to understand what is going on inside their mind. Uh, what What is it when they see someone who does not have white skin, why they have such a visceral negative reaction about these people? Uh, when they have, when they know nothing about these people, they know th- they know nothing about their economic background, their educational background, their beliefs, nothing. But yet they will hate these people simply based on the color of that person's skin. So that's what that was my motivation. Um, in the process of seeking these answers through conversation, uh, over time, I began noticing some of them were beginning to change their ideology and renounce their hate and their racism, and we were becoming friends. So I, I knew I had stumbled onto something, and I thought, well, let me keep doing this and see what happens. And more and more people began getting out of that, of that racist ideology. Not everybody. You know, there will be those people uh, who will go to their graves being hateful, violent, and racist. But if one person changes, that changes a generation. And I've seen many change just through artful conversation. Okay, wonderful. And advocacy sometimes walk a thin line between aggression and passion, respect and violence, but conversation in between is often most important. As you've said, you've been quoted as saying, so tell our readers why this conversation is so important and how to cultivate a welcoming environment for constructive dialogue. Okay. Well, first, you know, you want to get together with people who may have different points of view, but, you know, you should not take it personally. You know, you, you should take it inquisitively in order to find out why this person feels that way. And, it, and this applies to anything, any hot topic, whether it's race, whether it's the topic of abortion or nuclear weapons or the current uh, president sitting in the White House, the war in Iraq, you know, what global warming, whatever the hot topics are today. Uh, you're going to be on one side. Somebody is going to be on the other side. And rather than shun that person, sit down at the table and talk with him or her, not to have a debate, but to have a conversation and that way you learn about what they're believing and you are sharing with them what you believe. Because even if you're even if you're at extreme opposite ends of the spectrum, um, when two enemies are talking, they are not fighting. They are talking. They they might even be yelling and screaming to, to, to drive home their point, but at least they're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you always want to keep the conversation going. And you never know when you might be planting a seed in that person. And that person is thinking about what you're saying. And if you nurture that seed, uh, it will grow. And as it grows, you, you, you find that you're forming a relationship with that person. If you nurture that relationship, you will find that you are forming a friendship and even as friends, you don't have to agree on everything. 
I'm sure you have friends, you know, that you like very much and you hang out, but you don't agree on everything. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes the world go around. But I will guarantee you, if you sit down with, with your worst enemy for five minutes, you will find that you have something in common. And if you spend 10 minutes with that person, you will find you have even more in common. The, the, the best way for a society to be defeated is by dividing and conquering, to divide and conquer. That's the best way to defeat your enemy. And this country right here, the United States, um, is doing a very good job of that, of that on its own. We don't need other people to divide and conquer us. We are dividing ourselves so other people can conquer us. Because we're not having and, these conversations with people. Right. And it's quite unfortunate that decades after the civil for racial equality, race is still affected so many issues today. So what I want to know is what advice do you give to those who find themselves at a disadvantage because of the color of their skin or ethnic group? Well, I would say don't look at themselves. Do not look at themselves as being at a disadvantage because of the color of their skin. Look at it as the other person who is discriminating against them. That person is at the disadvantage because they are not taking advantage of the fruit that the other person has to offer, the one with the, with the different color skin. We all have something to offer. I can learn things from you. You can learn things from me. And, but if I shun you because of the color of your skin or where you are from or your religion or or, or, you know, what color your hair is or whatever it is uh, that, I'm gonna, that I, I dislike about you, then I'm not putting you at a disadvantage. I am disadvantaging myself because I am not becoming a more well-rounded person. And our society is becoming more and more diverse. So I think it's time for us to change our manner of thinking. Yes. We, you know, for for the longest time, for centuries, we've thought, okay, yes, we are being discriminated against. Yeah, that's a fact. But let's not consider ourselves disadvantaged. Yes, we have been discriminated against, but we are not disadvantaged. The person who is doing this, the discriminating is the one who is disadvantaged because they are not taking advantage of what they can learn from us. Okay. We can learn and on our tell own. Our readers, right. Tell our readers about the Washington Ethical Society Bridge Builder Award you received among others. Yes, I received uh, two awards. I received a lot of awards, but the one in particular you're talking about, I received two from the Ethical Society. I received one from the local Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, Ethical Society, which was the uh, Bridge Builder Award, and then I received one from the National uh, American Ethical Society, which is a national award. It's called the Elliott Black Award, a very prestigious award. Um, I, I received those because of of my um, of my uh, my work, you know, in in race relations of of sitting down and having ethical conversations with uh, people who are on the extreme, who hate, who are racially uh, hateful and uh, and violent and having successful conversations uh, to the point of where some, you know, ended up converting themselves and renouncing their own organizations and leaving those organizations. 
Okay, wonderful. And what was it like being mentored by Pint of Perkins and Johnny Johnson? Those were two of the greatest uh, American blues and boogie-woogie uh, piano players. And I, I am very, very fortunate to have uh, to have known those people. You know, they were my idols when I began listening to music. And fortunately, they they both were were still alive and still playing. And uh, my my dream was, of course, you know, at the time I couldn't play. I you know I would hear them on these records, and I liked that music. And I, when I decided I wanted to play, I would try to play like that. And then uh, my dream was to, to see them, to see them perform in concert. So I achieved that dream. I went to concerts and I saw them. And then my dream became even bigger. I wanted to meet them. And I did meet them. And then my dream became bigger, like, hey, I, you know, I want to be their friend. I want to learn from them directly. So uh, they both were very kind uh, gentlemen. And they would spend time with me at my home whenever they were in town. One lived in Chicago. The other one lived in St. Louis. But when they had concerts in Washington, D.C., they would come to my house and they would stay in my house. And, uh, and I would learn directly from them. Uh, they both are deceased now. But uh, I'm very fortunate that I got training from these people who created that style of music directly. I got it right from them, not from some second or third generation person who learned from somebody, somebody who learned from them. Wonderful. And you touched on this earlier, but I just want to go back on it a bit. Um, your quote is, I said, while you're actively learning about others, you're passively teaching them about yourself. Always be that's, honest. Why is correct. this in particular so important? This is extremely important. Uh, while you're actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. Because, you know, when when you're talking with somebody, and, and, and you're trying to glean information from them, you don't realize it, um, that, you know, you're interviewing them or whatever, but at the same time, you know, they are observing you, and, and, they're, and they are making an assessment, a silent mental assessment of you uh, as to whether they can trust you, whether what you're saying is true, whether they like you or don't like you, whether they agree with you, et cetera. So while you are actively learning about someone else, at the same time, you are passively teaching them about yourself. So you want to always make a good first impression. It's like a salesperson. Um, you want to be able to return to that person, to have a second visit with that person. Uh, you want to be able to invite that person to come back to, to your place of business or your home or wherever you're doing the interview or if it's a phone call. Uh, you want to be able to see that person again. So it's important to always make a good first impression. You may have a chance to make a good second or third impression, but you only have one chance to make a good first impression because a lot of people will judge you on the first impression that comes to their mind. And if you screw up the first time, chances are you will not get a second visit, a second opportunity. And if you do get a second opportunity, they're still going to be holding uh, what, they, what they thought about you the first time in their mind. So always be honest, always be straightforward. And um, like I said, because while you, know, while you think 
you know, you're learning something about them. Uh, at the same time, they are assessing you. And so you, you are, you are, um, you know, un, under observation. Okay. And tell us a bit about your new documentary, uh, Accidental Courtesy Race in America. Okay. Well, I wrote a book uh, that was published back in 1997-98 called Clandestine Relationships. And clandestine is spelled with a K, not a C, like the regular word. And uh, it was my um, encounters and experiences in meeting members of the Ku Klux Klan all over the country. Here where I live in Maryland, up north, down south, the Midwest, and the West. I interviewed a lot of these people and uh, and wrote about it in my book, uh, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Um, the book became very popular. I would get a lot of interviews and um, TV shows, radio interviews, etc. cetera. Uh, I would often get requests to do, for, for people who are, who are in the film business to make a documentary, make a film about my work. Because, you know, they either read the book or they read a review of it or they saw me on TV, heard me on the radio, saw me in a magazine, newspaper, whatever. And I would get all these emails. Uh, it's been going on for years. So finally, about almost three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, um, somebody had emailed me and wanted to do a documentary as usual. Uh, I was impressed. There have been some, you know, that I've been impressed with, you know, their proposals. Others were, you know, film students, you know, still learning uh, in, in film school or something, um, which, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But um, mm-hmm. I was waiting for something, you know, that I thought would be, uh, you know, more professional. And so I got an offer, and I looked it over. It sounded good. I sent it to my attorney, and he looked it over, and we changed a few things and sent it back, saying, you know, we, we, wanted, we, we want this out of it or that out of it or whatever. And they agreed. And so once all the terms were set, I agreed to let them uh, film me. And we went around the country uh, interviewing members of the Ku Klux Klan and some neo-Nazis and some other people, you know, who, who worked in that, uh, in that type of arena. Uh, the, the film uh, premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas, and several other festivals around the country. And it's won, I think, now six awards. Um, and it, uh, it aired nationwide a couple of weeks ago on PBS, and now it's available on our Netflix and our iTunes. Okay, wonderful. And what message do you hope your music and advocacy will leave behind? Well, I hope that it will inspire people to, to, to do some of these things. You know, we spend a lot of time um, belonging to groups where everybody thinks the same way uh, or likes the same thing. We live in echo chambers where everything we say is, is reflected back to us by everybody around us. So we're not really um, improving our society. We need to invite people who may disagree with us to the table to sit down and talk with us and so we can understand what it is they fear about us, what it is they don't like about us. Because at the same time, we are also learning what we fear about them, what we don't like about them. And it may turn out that we had 
misperceived what they're what they're putting out. You know, you don't really know somebody until you sit down and talk with them and have a conversation. Uh, yes, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're going to be people who will never agree. I mean, we know that. But they're going to be people who can agree if given the chance. And what I see so much of today is how we communicate. We don't communicate. What we do is this. This person will go on CNN and talk about that person over there and bash that person. So that person over there will then go on Fox News and talk about this person over here who bashed him. And then they both will appear on some panel on uh, MSNBC, and they will talk at each other. So either people are talking about each other or they're talking at each other. Nobody is sitting down and talking with each other, and that's the key. That is what we have lost, the ability to talk with people. You know, we hide on Facebook. We hide on social media. We express our views. We get into fights. But we don't sit down and talk with each other. And that's what I've been doing, and that has been the key to my success um, in bringing people together. Uh, as a as a musician, I am a band leader. And it's my job while I'm on stage to bring harmony uh, between the voices that are on stage, uh, whether it's a singing voice, uh, the horns, the piano, the, the bass, the drums, the guitar, uh, what have you. I want them all to blend in harmony because that's what attracts people to my music, or rather to any music. You know, if, if somebody's on, on stage and they're playing out of rhythm, out of time, or they're or they're playing bad notes, you know, you're going to get up and leave the concert. You don't want to hear that because it's offensive to your ear. So as a band leader, it's your job to, to bring everybody together and blend the sounds so they work harmoniously. Well, naturally, when I step off the stage and I'm just, you know, Daryl Davis, citizen in society, I still have that same mentality that I had on stage of creating harmony. So on stage, I create, I create harmony between the voices and instruments. Off stage, I try to create it between the people because I want to be able to go through my society getting along with people, getting along with them and each other. Right. And the last question I have for you before I let you go is what's next for you and what can we look out for? Well, I am updating my book currently uh, because the book came out in 97, 98. I hope to have the new version out uh, by the end of this year and uh, clandestine relationships. And I will continue uh, doing my work, uh, playing music. And uh, I also uh, own a, um, a music publishing and licensing business that I just started, where I uh, I supply music for film and TV, and and for other artists who who are looking for uh, for music to to uh, perform. Um, so I'm working very hard on that and building that you know that company. But uh, my book will be back out again by the end of the year, and I will continue uh, supporting the film, and also continue working in race relations and trying to better uh, how we get along and how we communicate. With each other in society, and I'm and I'm hoping that people will be inspired to do the same and take it even further, you know, than I've been able to do. But my one big project that I'm that I'm working on very much is I'm going to open a museum, 
um, on on this very topic. I have a lot of uh, memorabilia, a lot of Ku Klux Klan robes and hoods and Nazi stuff and all that kind of stuff that I've been given by active members who have quit those organizations since they came to know me and became my friend. Um, so I've taken, you know, their stuff and I keep it locked away, you know, uh, off-site. And one day I will open a museum where I'll be able to, to display these things and have seminars and lectures on on, on this, sort of like at the Holocaust Museum. All right. Thank you again, and do enjoy the rest of your day. You do the same. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can talk about making a difference, you can take action to make a difference, or you can join Dynamic in doing both. Until next time, stay blessed and be inspired.